Hello, everyone, and welcome to Police Off the Cuff, Real Crime Stories. This is a special Sunday edition. Uh, Joe Murray and I were not watching football, so we said, what's what's a good topic we can go on today and address our audience with? And um, a few days ago, actually this week, the FBI came out with these homicide statistics nationally. And we're going to take a, a little bit of a dive, maybe a deep dive into this. Why it's so? Why is it? occurring that the murders are going up in, in the, a lot of cities across the USA. And we have our feelings on it. The mainstream media has their feelings on it. We're going to take a little dive and we're going to give uh, our reasons for what we, what we think is causing this major increase in murders in, in the cities across the USA. And with me today to take this deep dive is retired NYPD police officer and, of course, defense attorney, Joe Murray. Welcome to the show, Joe. Uh, thanks so much, Bill. Glad to be here. This is a great subject. It impacts me because I, I deal with this every day as a criminal defense attorney. You know, Joe, when I watch the uh, the take on it that the mainstream media gives, um, I don't necessarily agree with it. You know, and I'm, I'm going to play a short video by um, CBS News and they they hang on. I'll just cue this up. And they give our reasons why they think uh, it's going up. And then we're going to give all reasons what, how we, what we think. And we'll see how it, how it in fact, uh, differs. Let's see if we could share this on the screen. Up in the biggest increase since the Bureau started keeping those records in 1960. We have more now from CBS's Jeff Begay's. It's been a year of brazen violence nationwide. 23 shot, including three killed outside a nightclub in Florida. A man opens fire at a convenience store in Washington. And in Philadelphia, a shooter in a car fires on a group. Six were shot, one died. Like everyone I know in Philadelphia, I am outraged by this. Over 400 people have been killed in Philadelphia this year alone. What can we do to prevent the next murder by gun? The murder rate soared in 2020, up 30%, the largest increase ever. Cities like Memphis, Milwaukee, and Des Moines all set records. It's horrific. Ronald Surpass, the former police chief in New Orleans and Nashville, says he is stunned by the firepower. Multiple gunshots, powerful weapons, indiscriminate use of those powerful weapons in crowds of people. Experts blame the social and economic toll of the pandemic, coupled with the spike in gun sales. Three out of every four murders involved a gun. Carl Day is an activist and pastor in Philadelphia. What's going on in the streets with all these homicides? What we really see now, man, is just, unfortunately, we had a perfect storm in a worse way. I've seen young boys tell me that their best friends or closest friends went from being in the sports to then having access to money now suddenly had interest in wanting to sell drugs or wanting to partake in uh you know violence or purchase weapons late today in philadelphia there was yet another homicide a 22 year old man shot five times police are still looking for the suspect aura jeff the is there in philadelphia thank you so, Joe, you see that uh, we both came on the NYPD. I came on in 1985. I, I think you, you come on in 84, was it? 87. Oh, 87. Okay, so you're a youngster. Uh, <laughs> but we saw this kind of 
violence in in the late 80s and of certainly the uh the early 90s before the NYPD took proactive action against it and started reversing the trend we cannot pretend that there is one single reason for this for this the murder rate going up there are multiple reasons and you know when when the when a lot of progressives blame it on covid i just shake my head like come on stop you know that's too convenient there are so many other um things that impact this so let's not just blame it on covid and joe i'm going to let you speak to that what, what now give us some of the reasons that you think this is uh homicides are going up 30% across the nation well i uh, let me just address the COVID issue because I think it is somewhat of a factor because what happened during COVID, right? People were getting checks. People went out working. Uh, you know, there's idle time and, and they're out there doing things they maybe wouldn't have been doing if they were at work or at school or uh, something else. So I think it may have had some impact, but certainly not the impact they're trying to give it. And I think and I'm, I'm sure you'll agree with me, I think it's because the left has been trumpeting this decarceration, criminal justice reform, uh, defund the police, you know, and it's really, I think that's what's the cause of it. Now, I'll also say the Black Lives Matter movement with all the protests and demonstrations and violence against police officers, you know, here in New York City, we got rid of anti-crime, which, you know, they are the workhorses of this job, going after guns and violent crime, street crimes. We uh, had the diaphragm law. So all of these things had an impact on police, police administrators pulling back the reins. And I think that Black Lives Matter was a big one. They pulled back the reins and they were not as aggressively, proactively policing. And I don't think it was just here in New York City. I think it was all big cities. Uh, if you look at you know some of the statistics that we were discussing, Seattle seemed to be the worst. And we know because consistent with what I'm saying, Seattle pretty much ran up the white flag. They had this uh, frozen zone that was uh, taken over by these leftists. And they really stopped policing and proactively trying to address crime. So it became like, you know, anything goes. So I think that well, Joe, if you look at the, if you, if you look at the flyer yeah. uh, or the slide on the screen, Seattle with a seventy four percent increase in murders. That's that's just incredible. Disgusting. And we cannot say COVID in Seattle. What we can no. say is defunding the police. Uh, no one getting arrested. No prosecution decarceration, just out-and-out out chaos. Behind Seattle is New Orleans, then we go to Atlanta, Chicago, Boston, Portland, Houston, and then going down to New York, 39.2. Look, I we all came on during the era or we, we worked in the midst of Comstat. And we yeah. used to say, God forbid the poor commanding officer who was the CEO of a precinct when the numbers start going up. He's going to be launched so fast, it's going to be like a guarded rocket, you know? And <laughs> it's just, and we knew that. But now, the, where is the accountability? Crime is going up everywhere. In New York City, had this happened during the real heavy-duty Comstat era, I can't even imagine 
you know, and obviously there's a lot of political reasons why. Look, we we talked off air about broken windows policing. Right. We came through the department during the pro broken windows policing era. And for you folks listening that don't know what that is, that's basically concentrating on the lower level crimes uh, with the theory that lower level crimes will impact the higher level crimes. And it works. It Crime in New York City in 25 years, the seven major crimes went down 70%. But now we have academics writing reports saying broken windows didn't work and never worked. I, I just, I'm baffled by that. It's such a shame because we were out there in uniform enforcing broken windows policies and we saw it working. I mean, I know just from what we did, I mean, and broken windows, and I think it was also, and Giuliani should get some credit for this, Jack Maple, they really put a lot of things together. The Comstat was fantastic. The communication that we now had, you know, with within the department, remember you used to just do an intelligence report. If you saw something, you threw it in the box. You never knew what happened after that. That all changed. So we were we were being smarter and more strategic in the way we were doing it. There's now FIOs in the precinct, field intelligence officers. So where I would write a report thinking that's a suspected drug location, I'd forward it to narcotics and never hear another thing. We now have FIOs in the precinct. You go in, you talk to them, you identify them, and they look at it, and they look some of the parties. You look up in the computers who's been arrested there. Like that, we're so much smarter in the way we're handling it, and broken windows is a big part of it. You know, so many things happen that people don't realize. I saw in the news there was a, a kid who was subway surfing and died yesterday. And then, you know, we were talking about it. I said, Bill, what's, what's the first thing? You know, do you think he paid his fare? Do you think if he 100%. was stopped and arrested for fare beating, he'd be alive today? Instead of someone like AOC who, who led the puncher cop movement in Brooklyn because they want to ride the subway for free and they shouldn't be arrested. It's just outrageous. But broken windows works. It saves lives. I remember during my campaign in 2019, there was a big article by the post of a, a guy who was arrested for jumping a turnstile and he had a 45 sticking out of his waistband. He was handcuffed, he was rear cuffed. And that's what really made it so prominent. The officers didn't even know, they missed it in the search. Why? Because they're so afraid to touch people now because of everything we talked about, the politics, the anti-police, this war on police, they're afraid. And look at the jeopardy they put themselves and everyone else in that station house. A loaded 45 caliber pistol in the front waistband. And they had a picture of it from the desk. That guy was stopped at a turnstile. Broken windows works. We've seen it over and over. It works. It saves lives. You know, Joe, I wanted to, you know, I believe that too. Someone in the chat said broken windows was too heavy handed. And I think that what you got to realize is that you either take the side of the criminal element or you take the side of the victim. I think as a former police officer that we must protect the victim and we can, criminal justice surely needs some reform, but going totally away from broken windows and decarceration, deprosecution, to me, is lunacy because it shows that you do not care about your 
John Q. citizen walking to work every day that has the right to get to and from work safely. But if you're letting these predators out in the subway system, there was a guy in New York City who was arrested five times in a year for a loaded gun. And he's out because of bail reform. And these politicians in Albany that wrote these laws, they're obviously not riding the subways in New York City, and they're not walking back and forth to, to their workplace because the, the laws that they've written make no sense. And I think as a defense attorney and a former police officer, you can uh, speak upon that. Absolutely. And, you know, I, there's a couple of things I want to mention. The first thing that happened January 2020, and that I, you know, I think it impacted my election because it's so hard to run for office saying what this is coming in January. It's coming in January. But after it hit in January and, and all of a sudden they're emptying out Rikers Island because of all this bail reform that was now illegal to hold these people. The streets were hitting and the crime immediately started spiking. I remember I was with Commissioner Shea at a community board meeting and we were talking about it. And to his credit at that time, a new commissioner, he was like, this is bail reform. And he, the mayor didn't like it, but he called it out. So um, to me, as a criminal defense attorney, let me tell you what I saw. I had regular clients that call me all the time. They constantly get arrested. Uh, a lot of them are drug dealers and doing stuff. So I get a phone call from one of my regular guys. And I love this guy. He calls me up. He goes, Joe, I got hit again in 103. Uh, he goes, but what's with this bail reform? I was like, listen, bail reform on a drug case, they cannot ask for bail. So on top of that, we have a new DA. I lost my election to this uh, Melinda Katz. They're going to throw a program at you right away. They're, don't worry about it. You're going to be out. You're going to be out. You do your program. Your business will operate. <laughs> you know what I mean? So he's like, so I don't need you for this. I said, no, you don't need me. Uh, if you do, call me. But I'm, you don't need me to get you out of jail you know, for bail because no, it's illegal to ask for bail. And then they're going to throw this program at you and you'll be right back out in the street. So tell me that this is not the cause of the rise in crime. I have another guy who was arrested 9-11-2020 with a gun. He made bail. It was $3,000. He made bail. And he's got priors. And he's still out. And we're still going. I'm fighting like hell for him because I always am. I have a duty of loyalty to do the best job I could do. What? Now the city has taken, because here's the funny part of this. The city decided because of all this crime and rising in uh, shootings and stuff, OCA and our chief judge, uh, Judge DeFior, they got together and they said, look, we have to concentrate on these gun cases. So they decided, okay, we're going to have a specialized gun part. They're going to focus on all these gun crimes. So here I was told by the judge on the last appearance, Mr. Murray, either your client takes the plea that was offered or you're going to have to go to trial. So I was like, okay, judge. So I'm getting ready to do my virtual appearance because we still don't do in person. Only some cases go in person. And I'm trying to log on, but the system is not accepting me. I call the clerk. She goes, oh, you have a gun case. That's going to be put in the new gun part that's coming. We don't even have a date yet. We'll contact you when, when that you know when, when they set that up. So 
in, in the intent to try to expedite gun cases, they slow them down. You know what I mean? Like it's, it's crazy. Now on top of that, we have a Rikers Island crisis. People are dying over there. Correction officers are working triple shifts, walking off the job. They just can't, you know, sustain themselves. So the AWOL rate has doubled and more. So there's a crisis at Rikers Island. And now the push is, okay, wait, I know you're doing that gun thing, but we got to get these people who are incarcerated right to trial as soon as we can. So with the limited juries that we are now using, because that we're not full service, you know, at all yet, they're going to prioritize the people who are on Rikers Island and incarcerate as they should. These people are not yet convicted, but they're in custody. They're going to prioritize them to empty Rikers Island to go forward with their trials. So now my guy, who's the gun, he's out. That case is going to get kicked back and kicked back and kicked back. Now, my guy is a good guy, honestly. But there are a lot of people that are not good guys, and they get released on a gun case, even with priors, and they go out and commit more crimes. And it's one after the other after the other. They don't want to put any more bodies on Rikers Island. So it's it's chaos. You know, I'm just going to put this little flyer up on the screen, and uh, Bill Bratton comes on and talks about uh, criminal justice in uh, in New York, and uh... police commissioner Bill Bratton. He's the author of the new book, "The Profession: A Memoir of Community, Race, and the Arc of Policing in America." Out today. Also with us, host of MSNBC's Politics Nation, president of the National Action Network, the Reverend Al Sharpton. Good morning to you both, Commissioner. Good to see you. You got a rave in the New York Times this morning. I see. Congratulations on that. Um, let's talk about that poll we just saw. You were the commissioner of police in this city. What's going on in the ground and how important is it to the cops that we get a handle on it again? It's ironic how quickly crime has risen to the number one issue, uh, literally in the space of a year. Uh, brings us back to the 90s in many respects. Uh, all of these candidates are going to be challenged by that issue because the circumstances are very different now in 2021 than they were back in 1994, for that matter, in 2014, when I worked with Mayor de Blasio. So what's going on? We've heard that the we, pandemic contributes to this. A lot of people have said that. But what's going on on a policy level that's leading to this spike in crime? Uh, on the policy level, the police have been pretty much told to stand back, hands off, don't get, don't get engaged. Uh, and you can understand why that the uh, public attitude toward the police right now is very frayed, that the trust that was there for a while uh, is not there. And so uh, we're in a tough spot. And the next mayor is going to have an incredible challenge trying to get the police to re-engage, trying to get the public to re-engage with them. And the issues of uh, homelessness, the emotionally disturbed, uh, probably more significant than any other time I've been familiar with New York City. We've had a number of the candidates, Commissioner, on this show over the last couple of weeks. Um, a lot of them have talked about getting mental health front and center, along with police, getting social workers involved in some of these calls. I've asked them just as a practical question what that looks like. Phone call comes in, 911 call, right? The guys go out in their cruiser. The two officers go out. Is there a social worker in the, in the back seat? And some of them said yes. Uh, how do you integrate mental health into policing if that's not the answer? The devil's going to be in the details, and uh, I don't think any of them really fully understand uh, how complex this is going to be. 
In LA, when I was chief there, we had smart cars, which was a police officer with a clinician that would go to these calls. Uh, the police are always going to have to stay involved in some way. So trying to put it together is going to be an extraordinary challenge. Nobody's quite figured it out. Uh, some countries have specialized units that respond to these entities, all these calls. With 3,000 calls a day in New York City, you're going to have to set up an amazing bureaucracy separate from the police. Uh, where's the money going to come from? With a $3 billion budget projected, deficit projected for next year, the mayor is going to have major challenges, the new mayor. And Joe, interesting to note that it is a former New York City police officer at the top of that poll we just read. Yeah. Unbelievable, right? Uh, the big thing when all these geniuses figure out these programs, uh, let's send a social worker with a radio call. Okay, how are we paying for it? You just took yeah. a billion dollars away from the police budget. And now you're talking about putting a social worker in a call with a cop so that they can go to domestic violence, EDPs, things like that. I mean, we spoke before about, you know, police aren't there to hold court on the sidewalk. Right. They they go to a job and hopefully when they leave or they arrest someone or, or they leave the job, that things are better after they leave. That's not always the case. However, it is, you, you heard uh, Bill Bratton say how complex an issue this is. And the bottom line is too, they don't want to pay for the police. You think they're going to pay for 10,000 social workers to go to the jobs? And that's so important to bring up. These social workers can never respond to these jobs without the assistance of police. Now, I'm not saying they have to be there the whole time. They may make a determination, okay, this one's not violent. Uh, you know, we, we got on the control and the officers can resume. But I think, first of all, there's a huge liability. These are unarmed, unprotected, untrained, ill-equipped for violence social workers. So I think the police are going to have to respond and stay with most of them anyway. You're not you're not saving any bodies. You're increasing the amount of the force unless you can just count them as civilian members. I, I don't know how, what their plan is, a separate agency or just make them civilian members of the police department. But in any event, he's absolutely right. We're always in a deficit. Where are they coming up with this money, the budget to do this? It's crazy. I don't think they've thought of it. Duty, Ron, thank you so much for the $10 Super Chat. Uh, his comment is, Revenal is a race monger, and he hates anyone that isn't black. Talk about reverse racism. That's Al Sharpton. I happen to agree. That's why I didn't really care to hear what he had to say, because he's not an expert on anything, specifically policing. So there was no point in me playing any further of what he has to say. But, you know, they, we saw even in the Gabby Petito case, the Moab police, in uh, they were highly criticized for maybe making what was perceived by the public as the wrong decision. And they mm -hmm. spent a lot of time on that job. I don't know how if it was a half hour, 45 minutes, it was an hour. It seemed like they were there for a pretty long time. Many heads, many minds were involved. There was an investigation done on that job. Would have a social worker with them made a different decision than the police? What do you think, Joe? You know, I, I think the problem is social workers know social science and and they know, uh, you know, psychology. They don't know the law. They don't know the evidence you need and and uh, procedure and criminal procedure. Police, they don't know that. 
they're going to have to learn that if they're going to impact this decision making, which I think is their goal. They want these social workers to have some kind of input in the decision making on how they handle these jobs. How are you going to do that on top of hiring these people? You're going to now have to give them legal training, police training. I mean, it's it's just I don't see this working. On top is I want to raise some other issue with Eric Adams. Now, I had always I like Eric. I know him from the job. And I had always thought he would come out ahead because criminal justice is the keynote issue in any race right now, whether you're a legislator or an executive. It is the for, forefront of all the issues, criminal justice. He's a former captain. He was on the job. But some of the things I hear him saying, we were talking about Comstat and accountability and the CEO, if he went to Comstat and his numbers were ticking up, well, one of the things he's talking about is allowing the community to pick the CEO, not the most qualified and best person who the community likes to be the CEO. So when you talk about a breakdown in policing and the coordinated effort <laughs> that put in place, this is he's dismantling it. And I think that was ill-advised to even consider that because how do they know who the candidates are? Okay, they're going to have a 45-minute interview of them. They'll look at their record of, you know, maybe even their evaluations. But you really won't know unless you've supervised that person or worked with that person to know if this is the right person for that job. And it's going to cause a breakdown of all of that work that was done during the Bratton era of coordination amongst the whole city that we were all Absolutely. working together. It's going to become pockets of who's doing what. You know, folks in the chat and uh, folks just coming upon this channel, please, if you're not subscribed to Police Off the Cuff Real Crime Stories, please go to our YouTube, hit that subscribe button, ring that bell, give us the thumbs up. We also have a Patreon and you can also become a member of Police Off the Cuff on our YouTube. And we have four levels. I won't go into what they are right now, but just know that we could use your support. We're talking about, uh, you know, we, it started out as the spike in murders. And that's an, uh, an FBI statistic that it went up 30% from 2019 to 2020. Obviously, they can't do the statistics for 2021 because the year's not over yet. I'm just going to put a, uh, a front page of the New York Post very recently. And this tells a lot about where we're at in criminal justice. And these are some of the kids that became victims of murders across the city. A lot to do with criminal justice reform, a lot to do with guns, a lot to do with violence. Uh, many progressives will say this has a lot to do with COVID. I don't agree with that. I think it has a lot to do with, in, in New, York City, New York City specifically, taking anti-crime off the road, uh, have, not having people out there that are making arrests for guns and violent crime, and also uh, the whole defunding the police movement and the putting the spotlight on police officers doing proactive police work. As you heard uh, Commissioner Bratton say, he said, police in New York City are being told it's a hands-off policy. Joe, comments? It's just shocking, Bill. I mean, you know, remember in the 90s, we had 22 
was it 22 or 2,400 homicides? It's incredible, the bodies. But these are human lives that were, that were killed, but now because of the policing and the aggressive proactive policing that took place to restore law and order, and it changed the mindset of people. People stopped carrying guns. There were a lot of people that just knew, hey, these guys are out there, the anti-crime team, I'm not taking a chance. It reduced crime. Deterrence works. We got down to under 300, right? It was, it was, yeah, it, 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 it was an incredible. But you know, you either decide do you want to have people in jails or in prison, or do you want them out there? And the trade off is 2,200 murders to 300 murders, or having people locked up tens of uh, thousands of lives. Also, when we talk about the seven major crimes. And the seven major crimes are robbery, murder, rape, assault, burglary, grand larceny, grand larceny auto. And that's how cities are determined whether their crime statistics per year go up or down. And during this big spike in, in murders, some of the index crimes went down. For example, rape, burglary, uh, grand larceny. And we can explain that in a non-police way. Well, one of the things with COVID was people weren't going to work. So they were staying home. No burglar, most of the time, a burglar is not going to burglarize an apartment when someone's home. It does happen, but that is a deterrent. Also, people aren't traveling and walking back and forth. Businesses were closed. So there goes commercial burglaries and, and grand larcenies and that type of thing. So some of the uh, seven majors can be explained as going down for non-criminal justice reasons. Comment on that, Joe. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, when I came on the job and you worked there as well, uh, Midtown North, you were doing your crime stuff in, uh, in Midtown. That was jam-packed with tourists from all over the world. Restaurant Row was a fixer, a two-man fixer, 46th Street, 8th to 9th, because of so much heavy theater, squad, theater district crowd going to the restaurants you know, either before or after the show. And then Times Square, that whole area, everyone wants to see Times Square. They were picking them off left and right. And we had so many initiatives, take back, all out, all these initiatives that were being done to make that omnipresence and, and deter these crimes. But without tourism, the theaters have been shut down. All of the uh, uh, venues are shut down. You know, even the, the dining, it was just you know, indoor dining and I mean, outdoor dining. So all of the tourism has shut down, but they were the bulk of the victims in any given year. You know, the, the percentage of the crime is on these tourists because they come here from all over and the perps know they're getting on a plane next week and going home. They're not coming back. This is an easy one because the, the case can't move forward without the victim testifying. So, I think that was a real, you know, discounted factor about the crime, because had they been here with all of this bail reform and everything that happened, you would see such higher numbers. But the Absolutely. fact that all that tourism is gone, there are less victims to be had, you know, so. You know, I Joe, really Duty Ron is trying to accuse me. And thanks again for a five dollar super chat of not knowing the seven major crimes because he did notice that I looked over on my pad just so, you know, I didn't want to have a, 
I didn't want to have a brain fart, but I do know what the seven major crimes are. But yeah, it was a Comstat moment where <laughs> I've been up at that podium many times uh, explaining why robberies were up in the two three precinct or the two four precinct when I was the robbery CEO of the of the squad. And uh, yeah, that was almost yeah. like a Comstat. Uh, what do we got? Angie saying something. Uh, Angie, uh, Angie, oh one, Andrea. Good afternoon, my two fave guys. Shh, don't tell Duty Ron. I won't. He's in the <laughs> chat, though. How do you take a hands-off approach to a hands-on situation? Doesn't make sense, in my opinion. Angela, you're very wise. You're 100% correct. Um, yeah, you're has so to right be... about that. Police work is physical. It's physical. You just can't change that. You know, it's a physical job. People that commit crimes, even if you're down the block. I had foot posts in Midtown. You'd see, they're not going to stop there and say, okay, here, here you go. It's a very physical job. You got to chase them, tackle them, arrest them, handcuff them. So, but, but they don't want that anymore. And they're trying to pass a bill here in New York about use of force and very specific, you know, steps that you can take and amount of force you could use. It's ridiculous. It's absolutely ridiculous. And you know what it's going to lead to? The cops are just going to step back again and say, look, I'm worried about my house, my pension, qualified immunity was removed at New York City. Wow, I'm just going to do reactive policing. You know, the crime is over, the perp is gone. Okay, let me help you get into the ambulance. Let me take a report. That's reactive policing, not aggressive, proactive active policing where you're spotting these guys who are casing a place, looking at people, you know if you're in a midtown post, like you can spot who the tourists are, the easy ones with the cameras, and, you know, they're the target. So you just follow them, and, and there you go. So we uh, want Dawn, that proactive, but it's very physical. It's a physical Dawn, Dawn Marie, Joe, Dawn Marie in the chat says, let's get physical, <laughs> physical, let's Love get Dawn physical. Marie. She's great. <laughs> That's great. I'm going to play another little snippet from Bill Bratton who seems to be like the world's police commissioner. And uh, we'll see what he has to say here. He's, nice. he's having a good time for himself, but in the meantime, I don't know about you, but he's annoying the hell out of me. Bratton, who led police departments in Los Angeles, Boston, and twice in New York. Hey, fellas, how are you? Stops to chat with a couple of officers. We have met before, have we not? Uh, did you get my speech, actually, for the academy graduation? You say the cop is the face of the government, the face of the state. It's the most visible. And the one that has probably the most power of any individual in government is that cop on the street. They're walking the beat, just as he did more than a half a century ago. Much has changed, but not everything. I would argue being a cop today in America is tougher than probably any other time going back to the early 70s. They're feeling not appreciated. It's, it's a frustrating time for them. So many of them are leaving the profession. That's not all that troubles him. Bratton is one of the leading architects of modern policing, whose reforms and innovative approaches lowered crime and, he says, bolstered the bond between the public and the men and women who serve and protect. The changes in the profession over the years, the reforms have been phenomenal, but it's as if 50 years we were doing nothing, that we're just marking time. And that's my frustration. In his new book, The Profession, Bratton fears much of what he helped create is crumbling. We have a national crisis. We have 50 states, 3,600 counties, God knows how many cities and towns. We have 18,000 police forces. And we have, unlike many other democracies, we have uh, very few national guidelines. 
There were even fewer when Bratton was a kid in the white working class Boston neighborhood of Dorchester. At nine years old, he was already dreaming of a life in law enforcement. This is your police, which is the book I checked out of the Boston Public Library every chance I got. He joined the force in 1970. Patrolman, badge 1190. Bratton says a problem then is still a problem now, a lack of preparation. My training was about six to seven weeks before I was given a gun in the blue uniform put out in the street. But the training now should really, I think, be expanded to a minimum of a year. Mm -hmm. That uh, Just think of the power that we're putting into the hands of a young man or woman, the power to take life. Bratton quickly rose through the ranks, becoming commissioner in 1993, when he embraced the concept of community policing. The American police working as partners with American citizens and the government will get the job done. The three, three Ps, it's very easy to understand. Partnership, work with the community. Two, the problems of the community, big and small. And three, what is the goal? Prevention. Deal with it in a way you solve the problem so it goes away. I, William Bratton. I, William Bratton. You solemnly swear. A year later, Mayor Rudy Giuliani lured him away to stem the crime wave sweeping New York. Very tough to work for. Uh, very Machiavellian in many respects. Uh, but uh, whether you like him or not, uh, he did change the city for the better in many respects in the sense that he made it safe. says broken windows policing, tracking down on quality of life offenses, and CompStat, a computerized crime tracking system, all played a part. The turnaround landed him on the cover of Time magazine. His boss was a captain. He story, photo, and he said, uh, we have the opportunity to uh, just you or you can ask him there. And I said, and said, and uh, so it ended up. Well, you know you were doing that. <laughs> it was basically going to be my exit. Story. Very bluntly to you. The citizens of this city need you. You know, Joe, it's uh, it's it's amazing watching that shit because oh, I didn't mean to say that, shit, but to, to to watch that because it, the perfect storm existed in New York City when Bratton became the police commissioner. Crime was out of control. Um, Mayor David Dinkins had sort of uh, let crime just uh, go crazy to the point of twenty-two or twenty-three hundred murders. A year besides the index crimes were off the hook. And the city, we, we called it, I'm, I know you're going to remember this, we called it the Brian Watkins moment. And the yeah. reason it was the Brian Watkins moment was because a tourist from Utah by the name of Brian Watkins came to this city with his family. And while they were traveling by subway, they were in the Times Square hub. His mother was attacked by a group of robbers. And Brian came to his mother's aid, and he was stabbed to death. And that seemed to be the incident that everyone in the city, that's enough. We have had it. Crime is going to stop now. And the public got behind it. The district attorney's office got behind it. The police department got behind it. The politicians got behind it. And it was like everyone, it was the perfect storm that was the, that was the dagger in the heart of New York City. Is there a moment, is that possible something like that could happen today? I think so, because that was just so profound. You know, you felt so bad for their family. They come to New York City as tourists, and then 
you know, tragic, tragic murder. It, it really was national news. It really, uh, it really rocked us as a city too. And I think it, it, you know, prompted that, you know, as much as I didn't like Dinkins, I just want to give him credit for safe, safe street, safe city, because our force numbers, I think that was also combined with the broken windows and the new Comstat and all the strategizing we were doing. We now had the numbers because so many people were hired off of that safe street, safe city money and the omnipresence. And it really does have an effect. Me arresting somebody one-on-one, -on -one, there's going to be a fight nine times out of 10. We, we were going to roll it. And, but now with all these cops, one on every corner, they're surrounded, they're overwhelmed, and they would, would not or less likely to fight with that overwhelming show of force. It's just futile to fight us. Some did anyway, you know, and they, they you know, made their own bed. But I think it was so valuable to have, and the libertarian side of me does not like an overbearing government, you know, presence. But in that case where we were drowning in crime, violent crime, I'm telling you, I walk into Sabaros and I turn around. I just turn around. There was a Taurus who put a jacket on the chair. And what else do they do? They take their pocketbook and they put it on the jacket and it swings behind. The guy sitting at the next table, a perp waiting for this to happen, goes right into her perp. And I'm standing over there. It, it, it was so rampant. And they knew. If you arrested them, they're never getting indicted. Or if they did, they would never go to trial. You know, so it, it was an easy one. So, well, Joe, let's talk about that too, as part of this whole when we talk about broken windows. If there's no punishment for committing, say, a grand larceny, which was a, is a low-level felony right now, I guess it's an E felony, right? Uh, just over a thousand dollars, say. Oh, credit. If there's no punishment for that, why would you stop doing it? Exactly. And, you know, Alvin Bragg, who's the Democratic candidate for district attorney, he's already said, I will not prosecute resisting arrest. So what does that send? What message does that send? Hey, guys, fight the police and get away. But if you don't, don't worry, I'm not going to charge you. It's incentivizing criminal activity and violence against the police. He also said he's not going to prosecute a lot of these petty offenses, they call them, but petty larceny up to $250. You steal something that's less than $250, I'm not prosecuting it. Think about all the small shops, coffee shops, get a bagel, get a coffee, newspaper, whatever. They just walk in and grab and walk away. There's no incentive to, you know, the, the, it used to be deterrence was the thing, deterrence. They're incentivizing crime. They're now saying, hey, you know what? As long as it's under 250, you're not going to get prosecuted. So people who maybe wouldn't have committed crimes are now going to go commit crimes. It, it's just ridiculous. And I, I, I don't know how. Thank God Tommy Kniff is running and he's getting a lot of traction. He's running on the Republican line in Manhattan. And there are a lot of people who are listening to this Alvin Bragg and saying, are we nuts? My little shop is going to go out of business. You know, you're not going to. But I, you know, Joe, I, I, th I think, I think a lot of um, progressives really do believe uh, they are true believers. They're Kool-Aid drinkers in this whole decarceration program. And that 
They don't care that it doesn't work. They well, just they have these these wonderful little slogans. We don't want to punish poverty. Okay, this is not poverty. These are people who are stealing, and they're not stealing bread because they're starving. They they they're they're going into you know all kinds of stores and grabbing stuff. It's not that they're impoverished. And New York City, you know, there is so much money here. And we are the most generous people in the world. I can't walk down a block without somebody shaking a cup or something and people are dumping money, you know, and I do it myself. Sometimes I see these people and I, I feel bad for them. We're what do you mean? You, you have a cup in, in your the world. What do you mean, Joe? You have a cup in your hand and you're getting donations. <laughs> soon with this reform, I was close. <laughs> you know, one of the things that I find crazy is that they've also chosen to blame this crime spike, this murder spike on COVID. And I fail to see when you have all these other reasons, bail reform, decarceration, failure to prosecute, um, cases backlogged for I don't know how long, putting a guy out on the street that's been arrested five times for a gun, putting him back out there. How do you blame COVID when those are the underlying conditions that are making crime rise and especially violent crime? How do you blame COVID for that? Well, I mean, they need to try to find. So I remember it was. Geez, I think it was around the time, let's see, uh, like the late 90s or whatever, when crime started coming down. And we were trying to say it was broken windows and proactive policing and, and things like Comstat. Well, the left was like, no, this is Roe v. Wade. Because <laughs> yes. abortions were legal, all these unwanted pregnancies were terminated so they didn't become abused crackhead kids growing up and committing crimes. I was like, oh my God. So now this is their attempt again to find a social reason for it. You know, COVID hit us across the country and crime is going up across the country. It must be COVID. It's, it's just insane. Well, Joe, you're also seeing, look at this is from Philadelphia. Uh, it's not just New York city that has this problem. Uh, Philadelphia, you know, it's, it's a, it's a national, national problem. And one of the also national problems is poor leadership. And in my um, life in, as a New Yorker, uh, this, is, this guy's been a disaster. Uh, I mean, he's, he's, there's no doubt he's the worst mayor that has ever lived in Gracie Mansion. He is a disaster. And I just hope he, he gets out of politics, maybe works in Times Square at some bodega so they can go in and steal all his stuff and see how he feels about it. But lack of leadership is a real, a re huge problem. I agree 100%. And I, I want to point out how embarrassed I am that he was elected twice. But by, by the majority that he was elected, I think it was 11% of the total eligible voters. It was some ridiculous number of people that turned out. Nobody turned out. And now we're stuck with him, you know? So I, I don't know what happened there. I don't know what people are afraid of. They're afraid to vote or register to vote because they got to do jury duty. I hear all kinds of like silly arguments why you're not going to vote. The ability to vote is the core foundation of this country. We get to select our government officials, our, our representatives, and people that don't want to vote. I mean, it's insane. And this is what we get for that apathy, that voter apathy. This is what we get. The fringe candidate gets in. He never should have won that election.
ever. I but hope people learn from it. It seems that um, this progressive philosophy of decarceration and, and uh, not caring about crime victims and hands-off police philosophy, defund the police, it seems like it's more popular than the people that are pushing for, no, no, we support the police. And I think, I think if you go back a year, the people that were, um, that were pushing to defund the police now are denying that they ever said it. But we, that's the beauty of video. We can just play the video and say, no, this is what you said a year ago. Now, because crime has exploded, you want to take that back now? And it's it's just so, when you talk about being disingenuous, that's disingenuous, saying you weren't on the holding that banner to fund the police because you were a year ago or a year and a half ago. Now, when it's been seen as a disaster, you're, you're saying, oh, no, I never said that, you know? You know what's scary to me is that this is some type of organized, concerted effort. This is not just something, you know, word of mouth going around. Because I remember, and you may remember this as well, all of a sudden last year, there were a bunch of politicians, city council people, uh, people running for the state assembly or, or state senate, who all of a sudden they were accepting uh campaign donations from unions, police unions, corrections, court offices. And then all of a sudden it became taboo and they were going to get canceled if they did. But instead of like giving back the money, because they already accepted it like they did every year, they had to uh, repurpose it to these bail funds when the police arrest people and put them in jail. So they took the money from the police unions and gave it to these bail funds this was an organized effort. I don't think these people wanted to do it. I think it was a form of like intimidation and threatening and cancel culture. You don't do it. You're going to be out. I really think there's an underlying, you know, below the radar concerted effort to, to impose their will on these po weak minded politicians. And I think the Black Lives Matter was a big part of that. These guys have been raking in billions of dollars. And I think that money is powerful and it's influencing a lot of people. So if, if you go to this city council person and say, look, I want you to give that $800 back to the SBA that you accepted, I'm going to give you 5,000. You know what I mean? Like, what are they going to do? Of course they're going to do it. So I think, I think it all happened at once and it was too convenient. There's more that meets the eye is what's going on here. 100%. Victoria Sean. Thank you so much for becoming a, a YouTube member of uh, the Police Off the Cuff site. We need all the members we can. We need all the love we can. We love that you guys like our New York accents. When I heard Bill Bratton's accent, I wonder if people across the country say, oh, we love that Boston accent, pack the car in the garage, you know? And I, I wonder if they say that about Bill Bratton's accent. I don't know if they do. But, you know, folks, thank you so much for the support. If you're not a member, uh, you haven't subscribed to Police Off the Cuff on YouTube, Please hit that, subs that subscribe button, ring that bell, give us a thumbs up. We need all the love we can get, you know, because these are these are tough times. Not, well, not tough times. I'm doing. We're all doing okay. None of us are missing a meal. I don't mean that, but just tough times for the criminal justice field. And uh, as former cops, as retired cops, our heart breaks when we see the stuff that uh, the current cops are going through or things they have to deal with. Uh, 
things that even, even you know, pay-wise and benefit-wise, every time you turn around, they're taking something from them, you know, and that pains us, you know, because being a law, law enforcement officer anywhere, anywhere in this world, anywhere in this country is a very difficult job. And to make it even more difficult and make it tougher and tougher for officers to do their job, it really, it really pains me to see that. Thoughts, Joe? Yeah, you know, Stace on the case, and I love her. She's great. She says they exploited black people to divide and conquer. So true. I mean, that's really what's been going on, you know, the last year or two. But I also want to point out that New York Post article that you have, Bill, with the 21 kids. Yes. I'm white. They this is the result of these policies. These this is what's happening. The rising murder rate, violent crime. Who is it impacting? Hello, Black Lives Matter, that you have the police afraid to do their job. Now we have this qualified immunity removed from New York City. It's still up in the air. We had, and thank God it was struck down, but the judge recommended they reenact it, the diaphragm law, which essentially it's impossible to tell whether or not you're in violation of it. So to opt on the side of caution, don't use force. I mean, it's just terrible, but, but with all, and getting rid of the anti-crime, I mean, there's just so much here. Look who's impacted by this. Where is Black Lives Matter now with your billions of dollars? What are you doing about this? Aside from attacking police every chance you get. The war on police must end. And we got to cut this race shit out. It doesn't make any sense because look who's getting hurt. I don't hear gunshots in my neighborhood. I live in Queens in New York City. But I guarantee you these people are hearing gunshots so much more now than they did last year. Yeah, 100%. You know, I just want to mention something, Joe, and I know that you were a former boxer. You were on the PBA boxing team. And I just want to uh, mention uh, retired Sergeant Pat Russo, who runs a program called New York City Kids in Boxing. And it's the most amazing program. He gets kids out of the inner city and he teaches them, he trains them to box. Some of them have gone to the Olympics. And there's an example of cops doing great things outside the department and not with anyone else's money. He takes private donations. That's the kind of uh, community policing that is so pays such dividends and it's such a great thing. And I just want his name is Pat Russo. I should have pulled up the um, the site, but it's New York City Kids and Boxing. You know, you could find it online. I should have. Uh, I, I apologize. Next show we do, I'll put that up so yeah, that you guys could. Uh, Cops and Kids, it, it is. And he's an amazing guy. And uh, he's saved so many kids' lives in the inner city. Just Absolutely. From and now he's having, retired and he's still doing it. This is still who doing New it. York City cops are and all cops are. We we love our job. We love doing what we do. We help people. You know, and Bill, it's funny. A lot of people say to me, how do you go from being a, a police officer to a criminal defense attorney? I'm really helping the same people. I try to help them as a cop. Even when you arrest somebody, how many times you arrest somebody, you talk to them, you try to... You're almost like a counselor with him. Hey, you got to change this. You know, you you can't operate this way. You know, you know how this is going to end, you know, prison or, or death, you know. Now, as a defense attorney, I'm doing the same thing. I'm trying to affect people's lives. And that's what cops do. Pat Russo One. is an amazing soul. But there are so many like him 
But this whole nonsense, defund the police, you know, war on police is ridiculous. It's not true. And that's why I'm glad you highlighted that. Excuse me. You know, I just want to point out, and, you know, of course, we have to always give two sides. There's people in the chat saying, yeah, but, you know, you can't protect the bad cops. And believe me, we don't want to protect the bad cops because bad cops make it difficult for all the good cops. And there's a, believe me when I say there's a very, very small percentage of bad cops. But, you know, something cops are also human beings and cops make mistakes and cops it's a very difficult situation out there where it's some of the decisions you have to make on the scene. And again, we will point to that Mo, the Moab police and the Grand Teton with Gabby Petito. People want to hang those guys. They, you know, for the decision that they made on the, on the scene with the, I thought they gave a lot of time to it, a lot of thought to it, but there are people that really want to hang those guys for, and I don't, I don't see it as a mistake but for maybe what they perceive as the wrong decision. So it's like there is punitive, uh, there's a punitive element to being a police officer. You can make the wrong decision to no fault of your own. Maybe it's a wrong decision or it's perceived hours, days, weeks later as, oh, you made the wrong decision. But you're making the decision on the scene in real time under tremendous pressure. You know, Bill, in 2000, I was I was on my mission to to go back to school and I was at Queens College and we had such great discuss. I had the greatest English teacher. We had such great discussions about race and everything going on that the aloe shooting was, you know, was the talk of the town. So they, the newspaper invited me to write a weekly column about policing. And I was still active on the job. So I went out and I started interviewing people and I went to go to Eric Adams. He was a lieutenant at the time. Tony Miranda was the president of the Latinos Associate Officers Association, LOA. And uh, Eric was the president of the 100 Blacks in law enforcement who, you know, I never met him before at that time in 2000, but I had always seen him on TV and I always was opposed to like some of the stuff he was saying. But I wanted to give him equal time and you know, present these issues. And he came out with some pretty good answers. Like I asked him about, you know, racist cops or whatever. Do you believe that uh, there are racist cops on the job? He goes, listen, we recruit from society. There are racists in society. It's going to happen. They're going to get on the job, hopefully with the academy and training, you know, because you do get a lot of social science and, you know, what do we call that? Uh, discipline that they gave us in the academy i forget but command uh, discipline said, command yeah, no and then we try to weed them out you know and he says i think the job does a good job in the beginning but then they just you know they let it go and i said well what do you think contributes to that he goes look you know you're working in one community like the black community and all your jobs are responding to the black community doing bad things because they don't call you to go to their birthday parties unless there's a crime being committed, they call you when there's a crime. So you're constantly, it's a conditioned response. I thought that was very, you know, accurate. You know, when yeah, you're in 100%. this, when all you see of this community is the bad side, it's going to impact you. So, you know, it's not that cops are racist. It's not that, you know, um, Cops don't care about their job. They do care about their job. But sometimes there's these social forces at work and the job needs to do more to, to 
you know, combat that and change that. 100%. Danielle Colby, she writes more training. And Danielle, I'm going to address that. And you're 100% right. No one would ever want to turn down training. Cops love to go to training. And if in their view, it's a day off the off the road. But however, when you hear politicians and when you hear police executives and when you hear mayors say they need more training, they do not mean that because training costs lots of money. And training takes the rank-and-file police officers off the road. So when you take them off the road, who's going to do their job? So I love training. And, and you heard Bratton say police officers should have training for one year, not six months like they currently get in NYPD. He said for a year. That's great. But that costs a fortune. And look, they want to defund the police now. You think they're going to pay for more training? That's the last thing they're going to pay for is more training. So when they say it, realize they're lying. They're not serious because Joe would say it. I would say it. Bring on the training. We love training. Teach me to teach me the sign language. Teach me, you know, teach me transactional analysis. Teach me verbal judo. Send me to that training. I love it. I'm off the road for a day, but you know something that costs the department lots and lots of money. And you see, They're not giving them more money. They're trying to take money from them. So they're talking out the side of their face when they say, we need more training. Yeah, you do, but you don't want to pay for it. So stop saying it then, right? Bill, you know, I'll give you a perfect example because you're right on point. Remember, it was the early 90s when we were switching from the revolvers to the nine millimeters. So they had a pilot program in each precinct. The CEO selected a handful of officers uh, that would, you know, he felt highly of that would carry the nine millimeter. It was like a like a test period. So I happened to be in the seventh precinct. Uh, William Ali at the time was my CEO. Great guy. I was pretty active, my partner and I in the precinct. So he selected us for the nine millimeter pilot program. We got trained four times a year to go to the range to qualify and, you know, get the additional training you get. And, you know, of course we could go to the range once a month for free. That would give us the ammunition. Like it was a great, you know, program. I felt very competent with my firearm. That's just the job training. You can go out and do your own training, but just what the job gave, I thought that was good because the nine milli. A a semi-automatic weapon has a lot of moving parts. You got to clean this thing, oil it. You really have to maintain it. And it's a a lot more complex than the revolver. The revolver is like old reliable. That cylinder turns, you know, and you just keep pulling that trigger. If it it doesn't fire, you pull it again, you get another one. So, uh, but it's a little more complex with that semi-automatic. So you need that extra time, I believe, uh, to work on that and to train on that. You know, because there are a lot of things that happen and it happened to me on patrol. I remember I was chasing a guy and uh, because I was in the Chevy, remember the hard seat belt buckle that would stand up? Yes. It hit my magazine release. So as I'm running, your hips are swinging. I see my magazine go flying out in front of me. I was like, wow, I got a one shot gun right now. You know, so I <laughs> take right. my gun out. You know, reload it. It was just, you know, there are things. That you know, that, that actually, Joe, that happened to me too, but it wasn't for, I, from the car. I got out. It was an anti-crime. I pulled my gun on a guy and the magazine fell out. I was like, oh. <laughs> I, 
that's a scary feeling. It is but, a scary you know, feeling. So, but here's the thing. As soon as it became citywide, the pilot program was over, we went twice a year. It went from four to twice a year. Too expensive to provide all this ammunition and training to the whole force. For us, it was a, it was a good thing. But for the whole force, they knocked it down to twice a year. How much more efficient are you if you don't practice on your own? And a lot of cops did and some didn't. But, you know, that's just a perfect example. It sounds good. They all love to say it, training, training, training. But then when it comes time to pay for it and make it happen, they all walk away. And then you remember the intact training. At one point, we were doing paintballs and we were shooting, you know, like having real combat situations with paintballs. That was incredible, you know, to do that. And that went away. You know, that's too expensive. Yeah, so, I mean, yeah. that's what I said. Cops love to go to training. But when yeah. they say more training, more training, they don't, they do not mean that. They don't, because they do not want to pay for it. You know, but they as totally... soon as we have another Diallo, what do they say? You know, these cops weren't trained. Look what they did, you know. You, you know, Joe, I'm going to quote the great chief, Louis Anamone, saying, you can give cops all the training they want, but unless you train the perps, <laughs> that they're not allowed to do certain things. Right. All the training in the world's not going to work because it's almost like the criminal element now is taught to fight the police because yeah, there's no yeah. penalty not to. You know, Danielle Colby, I know you you weren't here when I um, mentioned that you said more training before, so I'm going to highlight what what you just said. I know you went downstairs or something. Maybe more training in DV and the signs. I bet a lot of us would have paid anything to save Gabby. Yes, you know, uh, Danielle, we would, all of us would have. However, you don't know. We don't have a crystal ball. You don't know that had they arrested Gabby or arrested Brian that day, if that, in fact, would have saved her life. That happened on August 12th. I believe she was murdered on August 27th. So, you know, we use the term Monday morning quarterback, and we could all say, yes, if she was arrested or he was arrested, that would have prevented that. I, I don't personally feel that way if you feel that way i understand but uh, i don't personally feel that way i just perhaps because we're city cops and I, I was in awe at the amount of time and it, it was quality time because think about what they were doing during this time period of this car stop domestic violence case they were interviewing witnesses i heard him on the phone talking to the witness and he's questioning the witness back and forth, trying to decipher who's the primary. A lot of people don't understand that. They, the police have to do a primary aggressor analysis when you have a cross-complaint situation where you could and probably should lock up both of them. You do a primary aggressor. Who is the one really being aggressive here? And who is the one who is being defensive and you know trying to make the peace? You look at that. And that's where you make a determination. Okay, if we're going to arrest somebody, I'm going to arrest the primary aggressor. And I think they went through great lengths to do that on top of talking to that one witness who's independent. He's completely independent and, for all we know, completely unbiased. He's telling him what I saw, you know, what he saw. So on top of that, what did he do? He went back and forth, not one interview, back and forth, interviewing them, questioning them, confronting them, because originally they both kind of denied, you know, the physical force of it, and he confronted them. We have an independent witness that says he was smacking you and hitting you, and he's, he's examining her 
looking for injuries, spotting injuries. That's everything we want a police officer to do. You know, Joe, I agree with you. I thought that they did a great job only when it was put under a microscope by thousands and millions of people. Did you question it all? Body language people, uh, me- mediums, you know, everything, every, every, uh, you know, shingle yeah. hanger out there was commenting on it, you know, before, you know, Joe, we're at like four Oh seven. I, I didn't get to this. We have this attorney that takes an ad on our show and I, I don't want to, <laughs> I want to make, I want to make sure I, if any of you guys, <laughs> I, I don't want to get sued. Any of you guys need a great attorney? Uh, he's, he's a former cop. He's straight as an arrow and they call him the silver Fox on the police off the cuff, uh, real crime stories. His name <laughs> is Joe Murray. And you can get him. His website is jmurray-law.com. Uh, he's, uh, you can get him on his cell at 718-514-3855. And his email is joe at jmurray-law.com. And we heavily endorse him on this show, Police Off the Cuff, Real Crime Stories. You need a good attorney. Joe Murray is your guy. I almost forgot about that commercial, Joe. And I can't, uh, even though well, you're here, you. you're you're walking live commercial uh <laughs> during this show yeah. but you know i think we covered some great things uh I, I i although we covered some great things this is such a huge topic um, yeah it is it's so you much know, here. I, some of the things i wrote down criminal justice reform bail reform decarceration guns the availability of guns that definitely has uh, uh something to do with this defunding the police police personnel reductions you know yeah. we saw Record numbers of cops retired in the last few years because of this defund the police stuff. Uh, prosecution or lack thereof, COVID, the economy, broken windows, policing, investment in the community. We spoke about that a little bit. One of my number one things in investment in the community is invest in the young people. You know, programs like New York City Kids in Boxing with Pat Russo, give your money to that. In fact, the government should give grants to him. You yeah. shouldn't have to rely on private funds. Uh, of course, drugs is always a problem, and we didn't even get to touch on this, but gangs. Gangs yeah. are a huge thing across the city, and maybe if we invested more in the youth, maybe we could take a bite in another way rather than caught in, uh, incarceration of gangbangers. Maybe we could get them before they join a gang and uh, prevent them from doing that. Joe, we've been on for over an hour and 10 minutes, and this is a, like a Sunday afternoon coffee clutch. I called you up and I said, Joe, you want to talk about, uh, you know, the, the spike in homicides nationally? And you didn't miss a beat. And you said, I'd love to talk about that. And I know the people that watch Police Off the Cuff, they love you. They love Phil. They love you guys more than they love me. But that's OK, <laughs> you know, because I'm the host. I'm still the host. But they called Joe the Silver Fox and, uh, you know, Phil Grimaldi, the Joe Pesci lookalike from straight out of Brooklyn. And they love the way we talk and all of that stuff. And I want to also give a shout out to Duty Ron, who's uh, helped this channel tremendously. And he once in a while, he'll chastise me. And I say, hey, I'm David. You're Goliath. You know, you got the big channel. I'm the little David with the sling. But uh, I want to thank him. for He's, he's helped me tremendously. Um, someone had a question in the chat about for Joe. Joe Murray, if someone has questions regarding if something is criminal but not in your state, do you do Zoom consults to answer questions about what steps to take, or is that not a real thing? Laugh out loud. I love hearing from people, and I wanted to say when you when you 
read my ad and, and gave the website janemurray-law.com. Angela did such an amazing job, I think. I'm not technologically uh, sharp like that, but I thought she did a great job on the website. And uh, so, so go to it, check it out. And if you have any comments or questions, certainly something like this, if you had a question that you wanted to do a Zoom, I, I, I gotta tell you, since this uh, you know, pandemic, everything, they shut down the court, so everything has been virtual. So I've gotten used to that. And not only is it like the court appearances that are virtual, like you wanna meet with anyone, even amongst attorneys, we all jump on this thing and get in the box and we all talk. So by all means, I have I have no problem. Let's schedule it, shoot me an email and call me and we'll do it. I'll tell, I'll tell you one thing, Joe is always in the chat. I think he, he stays up late at night to answer some of your questions in the chat. Ask a question in the chat after, you know, yeah. uh, on, on the site, he'll, he answers them. I see he's in there all the time. I was like, Joe, don't you have anything better to do? You know? <laughs> yeah. He's up, he's up till two or three in the morning. He's not making Andrew, it to work the next day. day. I'm like, da, 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 da. and she's like, what do you got a girlfriend? What, what are you doing here? <laughs> <laughs> he's always in the chat. Yeah. He, he, but I do. I love this stuff. I, I've been living this since I'm 20 years old, 1987. I joined the police department at 20, been a police officer, I've been a violent felon myself. I've been through the system. <laughs> I know the whole nine. A criminal defense attorney. You know, Joe, one day we have to tell the story of what happened to you on the job because oh, people don't know, but it's, it, I, we can't do it justice at it, the end of the uh, show. And then I did the best my cousin Vinny you ever saw. I represented myself on trial in Supreme Court, New York County, and I won. The judge told me to go to law school. I became a criminal defense attorney. I ran for district attorney and I played a prosecutor and a judge for four years on the perfect murder with Bill. That's right. <laughs> Bill and we, were, we were like little quasi TV stars <laughs> in our own little world, you know? I've been living criminal I taught criminal justice at ASA College. A friend of mine, you know, was shorthanded and needed me to come in. I did a couple semesters there. It was so much fun. I'm still in touch with some of my students. I loved it so much. You know, Joe, it's amazing, like, when you got off the police department. and You didn't even have your undergraduate degree, right? Oh, I had nothing. It was I threw everything into this. I so he like, had to go to school basically for seven years. Straight, right. You yeah. had to go to you know. When I went back to college, I was on the police department with 17 years on the job. I said, you know, something. Let me get my master's degree. And I went back to school, and I was really like insecure and scared, like because I didn't have good computer skills, and I was like, I haven't been a student in you know 20 something years, and what if I fail? You know, I was like that, and and I, yeah. I made it through, and I did pretty well. But it was a little intimidating because we weren't raised in the computer age. And I had, no. I didn't even know how to use Microsoft Word when I went back to college. And I was yeah. like, oh my God, you know, it was rough. little stuff like just knowing how to cut and paste. I was like, what's that? You know, I didn't know. Yeah, you know? I, I was a city kid. I barely graduated high school. I graduated September. Like I had to do summer school or whatever. So I barely got through it. Didn't want to ever go back. I was happy. I was on the boxing team. You know, I, I never thought about going to college after that, but then you know, life threw me a curveball and I had to run with it. So it, 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 but, but Bill law school, everybody was like, Oh, this guy, he'll never make it. He'll never get into law school. Then when I get in, it was like, Oh, he'll never pass law school. Law school to me was easy. Criminal law. I was a cop and I was arrested. And I had, you know, my <laughs> and, I was arrested. And, I, and I had lawyers on speed dial. So, so I was able to, to get through there relatively easy. 
tort law is just the civil end of criminal law. It's the same stuff, you know? And then, you know, matrimonial uh, divorce and uh, family law. Well, I've been divorced and went through a custody battle, you know, like, so anything that they were teaching us, real estate. I loved when we were doing real property and stuff like that. I was like, wow, because I bought a couple of houses at that point. And I was like, the closing is so confusing. What is this document? What is that? And I figured it out, but I've done it. Life experience is so valuable. Yeah, that's the when best, I had that's the all best this teaching. Life, you know, I tried my first case before going to law school. And then when you go in, you're doing trial practice and you've already tried a case in the Supreme Court. It's a lot easier. You know? It sure is. So, you know, we're going uh, we're going way over the time, Joe. Sorry, I know sorry, that, I can uh, talk it's okay. I know, but I just want you guys on um on Tuesday night, we have Michelle McPhee. She wrote Mob Over Miami. She's written like seven or eight books. We're gonna we're gonna pick her brain a little bit on the uh, Gabby Petito case and the Murdoch case down south. And Monday, I, I'm going to spend a call with um, Chaz Bombentieri, his assistant, and he's going to give us a date that he's going to come on the show. I'm so excited to get Chaz Bombentieri. I'm a huge fan of his. I think he's a brilliant guy, brilliant actor, huge supporter of the police. So I'm looking yeah. forward to getting him on the show. Anyway, on behalf of Bill Cannon. Don't and forget to get your merch. Get your merch. That's right. Get your merch. And today's guest, Joe Murray, Police Off the Cuff, Real Crime Stories. Thank you guys so much for listening and watching on this unscheduled episode and have a great rest of your Sunday. Have a great day now.